0: Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode number three with your hosts, Mark Svatsky from Choose Boston,
1: Dan Rubin, HRV Homes, and Ray Hurtow, HRV Homes. Joining us today is our guest, Mark LaCasse from LaCasse Law LLC in Boston.
0: Mark is an extremely accomplished zoning attorney in the city of Boston and has represented major clients like National Development, The Holland Companies, and New Boston Ventures. As developers, so much of the risk we endure and the value we create is born during permitting and entitlement, and that's one major reason a strong zoning attorney is one of the most important players on your development team. Mark has been my attorney and advisor since the start of my career, and is someone I'm extremely grateful to have in my corner, and we're super excited to have him here joining us today. So without further ado, hey Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about what led you into law, and uh, specifically your practice based on zoning and real estate.
1: I listened to my grandmother. My mother's mother and her friends were professional businesswomen, which was a little unusual for their time and place in Maine, and they encouraged me to be a lawyer. And as a kid, I had no idea what that even meant, but I sort of listened to them and took their guidance and uh, ended up going to college in Boston, and the rest is history, as they say. You grew up in New England? I grew up in Lewiston, Maine, and came to college and law school in Boston, and I've been here for 38 years. Where did you go to law school? I went to Northeastern University School of Law and Northeastern University Undergraduate, so I'm a double Husky. Awesome. All right. Excellent, yeah. So Ray and
2: I are Huskies as well. Single
1: Huskies. Yeah. (laughs) Proud of my Northeastern. Love it. Do you think they're going to do well in the uh, NCAA? Probably not. No. (laughs) They're not going to go very far in March Madness? Yeah, I'd love to see them you know, gain more national prominence, but it's... uh, it's an amazing school, and what it has become is truly amazing. Did they still have co-op program when you were in school? Indeed, that's one of the things that drew me to it. Again, I was just this kid from Maine who was looking to go to college in Boston and discovered the co-op program and thought, mm, that seems like a pretty good idea. You know, go to school and work in between and get paid while you're doing it. So it worked out well. Did you immediately practice real estate law outside of school, or did you start with something else? Did not do it right away. Uh, The first two years out of law school, I was a judicial law clerk. First, I clerked for the Massachusetts Superior Court, then the second year I was a staff attorney at the state Supreme Court, then went to work for a firm that did litigation of all sorts and was thrown right into the frying pan of litigation of a wide variety of topics, product liability, negligence, car accident cases, consumer cases, insurance cases, just a wide variety of litigation matters. And then one of my other areas of expertise, having clerked in the court system and worked at the Supreme Court, was appellate work. So I did, over the years, about 50 cases that went to the state Supreme Court and the state appeals courts, so writing the briefs and arguing before the state's highest appellate courts. But in the midst of all that, you know, everyone does establish certain specialties within litigation, and I was the guy that did all the stuff involving condo buildings and disputes relating to condo buildings. And then that led to more, you know, the real estate type of litigation. And then I just burned out on litigation and banging your head up against the wall, which is what (laughs) litigation is, (laughs) and started to just literally turn myself into a land use and zoning attorney probably 15 years ago. So I've been practicing law for 30 years. So probably half of that was all the litigation stuff. And then the second half of the 30 years was morphing into what I do exclusively today.
0: So you take zoning work all over the city of Boston, but do you also take work or cases that are outside the city, just anywhere in the Commonwealth?
1: Rarely, if ever, do I venture beyond the boundary of the city of Boston. I have for certain clients or or certain connections, but by and large, I specifically focus my practice on the city of Boston.
0: And is zoning law different or the way zoning cases are handled in the city different from the rest of the Commonwealth amass?
1: could not be more different. Boston is unique among the 351 cities and towns in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. 350 cities and towns are governed by state law Chapter 40A, which is the State Zoning Act. Boston is not. Boston is the only city and town in the Commonwealth that is not governed by Chapter 40A, which is the state law that allows cities and towns to make their own local zoning laws. Instead, Boston, not surprisingly, has its own state law that created the Boston Zoning Code, and then in turn, the Boston Zoning Code is created by this other body called the Boston Zoning Commission, not to be confused with the Boston Zoning Zoning Board of Appeal. And the zoning commission is like the city legislative body that makes zoning law in the city of Boston. And if you were to look at the Boston zoning code and compare it to any other zoning code for any other city or town, it is completely and entirely different.
3: Can you elaborate on sort of what you mean by that? Like, is it more restrictive? Is it just The Wild West, what do you mean by that? Yep,
1: so perfect example is the way it works in Boston in terms of the granting of variances in every other city or town, not just in Massachusetts, but land-use law generally in every other state in the United States. It's a very basic principle of land-use law that variances are the exception and not the rule. They are to be granted sparingly and only in unusual circumstances. And then you have Boston. Go to the Boston Zoning Board every other Tuesday, and there'll be 75 cases on the docket. And in every single case, a handfuls of variances are doled out like without even a second thought. So in Boston, functionally, the way it works is we do zoning by variance rather than the other way around. And that's significant and not known by many people who don't practice in other cities and towns. I served on two different zoning boards um, in the past. One stint I did on the zoning board in the town of Ashburnham, Massachusetts, which is in north-central Massachusetts. I was on that zoning board for two and a half years. I had a house out there, that's why. And then I was on the zoning board of the town of Harvard, Massachusetts, in Worcester County, also had a house out there. Served as the chairman of that board for four years, so you know, got to know suburban zoning very clearly, and then came you know back into Boston and, and beefed up the practice and was just astonished at the difference between how it works everywhere else and how it works in Boston. Do you
2: think the city of Boston did that purposely, or do you think that they kind of created the zoning code a long
1: time ago and they just haven't updated it, or is it a combination of both? I would say a combination of both. So the original, the current version of the Boston Zoning Code that we have was enacted in 1956, and it certainly has been amended many times over the years, and neighborhood-specific zoning codes have been put into place over the years, but it's still used by the city authorities as a control mechanism. And a perfect example of what I mean by that is in every other place where you do real estate development, the whole permitting process is referred to as the entitlements process because if you do XYZ, you're entitled to these permits. I don't know anyone who calls it the entitlement process in Boston because, as I always say, you're not entitled to nothing, right? You just have to, you have to work for it. You have to get it. It's equal politics and law. You could read the zoning code in Boston from Article 1 to Article 90, cover to cover, and you still will only know about half of what you need to know to get through the process because it's all that unwritten political stuff, community review stuff that is where the power really lies in Boston.
0: So it would seem to me that if you can't rely on a specific code or a certain set of rules, it would introduce a lot of variability to a process where there's a lot riding on the outcome. I guess where this question is going is, how can a developer account for that kind of uncertainty when they're putting you know, large bets on the table without being able to be assured of a clear process forward and path to the Zoning Board of Appeals?
1: a good antacid yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: how about a zoning contingency well, i was gonna say a zoning <laughs> contingency <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe
1: <laughs> a zoning contingency will certainly help if your seller is willing to engage in that as part of your acquisition of course that's the ideal scenario is that unless this happens then i don't have to buy the property but in the abstract let's say someone already owns the property and they're undertaking this process that's the part where you know An antacid is their their only uh, remedy to the, the risk that is just baked into the process in Boston.
0: I mean, how often does a client call you and say, I just looked at this parcel of land or this opportunity. What do you think my chances are?
1: Yes, and they usually ask for their chances to be quantified in percentage terms, which I think is just, number one, impossible to do. And I won't do it because it's, it's a ridiculous proposition. I'm not going to quantify something as, you know, well, 60% chance of success here or 70% because it's meaningless. What happens if you're the, on, on the short end of the stick, right? The better thing to do is assess how your case is likely to play out as compared to other similar cases.
3: And how many clients end up calling you and saying, hey, I just bought this piece of land and I think
1: I can put 10 units here. And I always answer that question the same way. It depends.
3: But do you tell them you should have thought this through before you bought it or?
1: Yes, but I also understand the current market in Boston is such that unless you act on property quickly, it's probably not going to be an opportunity that lasts very long.
0: I think one other option is to underwrite the deal as of right. There are deals, although very few, which comply with all underlying zoning and do not require variances, or otherwise maybe the existing use is actually compatible with what you're paying for the purchase price. Maybe it's a nice stand-up double rather than a home run play, but it will work. I think that's one other mindset to look at a deal from.
2: I guess I mean my question is, how many
1: lots in the city of Boston are zoning compliant? Probably 5%. Even if you look at a neighborhood that has a zoning code specific to the neighborhood, and you look at the map and how they deviate it up 1F with an X, you know, number of thousand square feet for the requirement for that particular type of housing, two family, three family. And most of the time, what I find is that the minimum required, let's say it's a 3F. 5,000 zoning subdistrict, most of the lot sizes are nowhere near 5,000 square feet. So why the heck would they do that in the first place? Control.
0: I mean, I think there's there's also an argument to be made that we have such an anemic shortage of housing in Boston that we need to increase the supply wherever we can. And so, so long as the use and the proposal sort of seemingly fits with the block and is, isn't um, abhorrent to the neighbors and the rest of the community, let's support it and try to build more roofs over more people's heads to try to bring the price of housing down. It would
2: be nice if they took a lot of the ambiguity out of the process. <laughs> it would, you know... Do you like how the current process is set up? Or I mean, obviously it keep keeps you in business, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yes and no. And that's what people always say. It's like when I did litigation, there were all these, you know, defense lawyer bar associations that would do everything in their power to stop people from filing lawsuits, right? And they'd say to these defense lawyers, well, why would you wanna do that, right? You put yourself out of business. It's not that they're trying to prevent everyone from filing lawsuits, they're just trying to prevent the bad stuff, right? So No, I'm not happy with the process. I think it's terrible. I think it leads to unpredictability. It drives the cost of housing up for everybody. It's part of why we have the crisis that we have in Boston today, because there's not enough housing, because the housing that gets built is expensive to build. So I would be just as busy if they added predictability to the process because it's still complicated, it's still technical. But it sure would be nice to be able to advise my clients with some degree of certainty in a percentage formula, and be able to do it honestly based on what the zoning code says without knowing in the back of my mind, well, yeah, but it depends if some crazy person comes out of the woodwork and exercises their veto power. I mean, it's interesting because, to your point, the city
2: recognizes the need for housing, Mark, and they've tried to change the code to create less of that ambiguity. Like, in South Boston, they did this whole process to rezone self, Articles, Article 68, artists, right? Article 68. They released it and then there was it was a shit show. The community freaked out and then they decided, okay let's pump the brakes and then they enacted what we call now as
1: iPod. Right. The interim planning overlay district. Right. And if you look at the way interim planning overlay districts are supposed to work interim, which means between two points. The interim planning overlay districts are supposed to be between a planning study and the implementation of new zoning. So you start with a planning study, knowing that you're going to change the zoning, so you put this break mechanism into place in the interim of your new zoning, then you put the new zoning into place, and the iPod goes away. In Southie, they did it entirely backwards. They did a two-year planning study, instituted Article 68, and then after the fact, because of this consequential freak-out that people had about Article 68. Impose an iPod, first for two years, then extend it for a third year, and now are contemplating extending it for a fourth year, purely as a political weapon to clobber good projects that otherwise would be able to proceed as of right under the new Article 68. It's preposterous, and it's probably unlawful, but who's going to challenge it?
0: Do you guys want to share your experience with— nope. yeah, <laughs> I-, I can introduce it, but I know a little. Yeah. Dan-, Dan and Ray bought a building uh, in South Boston— and the plan was to comply with all new provisions of the recently updated zoning code. In the interim between buying the building and permitting it, the iPod, the interim planning overlay was imposed, and and we we got screwed.
3: Well, it was a little it was a little more complicated than that. Really, what happened was we had a buy right project. However, there was an overlay district that we
1: must have underestimated. It was the G Pod, so the green belt protection overlay you district. You didn't you didn't underestimate it, you. Looked at it properly, and then the G Pod was used in a heavy-handed way against you, no doubt. Perhaps it
3: was definitely political, and you know we won't get into it. But basically, we closed on the building. We had all our funding in place. We had a zoning-compliant project. Went to pull the permits. Had the community meeting for the G Pod aspect of it. Pitchforks. I, there must have been a hundred people there. You know, it was a lesson learned. We probably could have appealed it, and I think
1: someone had told us we could have sued the city to win. So the denial was based solely on the... GPod only. GPod pod Green Belt Protection Overlay District. Right. Which not, only... Not the iPod? Correct.
2: No, because it, we got our permit in before, before. iPod was enacted. This but, was
3: when Article 68 was very fresh and iPod mm, didn't exist yet. So I see. in so a way, one, one we could might say have caused it. <laughs> <laughs> we
2: could. That one
3: project, because it had a
2: lot of political clout behind it, pushed to get iPod enacted
3: in Southie. And so we tried... So, so don't blame bl- us. <laughs> we we tried working the deal six different ways, and it just was one of those things where it was just a round peg into a square hole scenario. It just wasn't going to
0: happen. So for our listeners' benefit, how did you guys exit that deal
3: luck. What was uh, the A retail outcome? buyer came through that really saw what had happened, right? They saw what happened in the neighborhood, saw the newspaper articles. There were many of them. They said, this looks like a great house I'd love to move into, put a couple dormers on. Sure.
2: It was a single family home that we were planning on tearing down and building a seven unit. Five unit. Did oh, you lo- 5 unit. Did you lose your shirt? No. No. We- He actually- He paid more than what we bought it for, shockingly, and he wanted to keep it as a single family because he just fell in love with it. So we were, knock on wood, we were very, very lucky in this situation. We
3: we had some investors we had to pay back, so we took a little bit of a bath on it, but it could have been way worse.
1: But since the Greenbelt Protection Overlay District is purely a mechanism that relates to protecting parks— What was the stated reason for the denial of your project based on GPOD? Well, what ended
3: up happening was our process was that when we go to apply for the permits and we go to go for the variances, we also make sure that we aren't an historic building. So we filed that. Then they came back and changed their decision after they said it wasn't historic. They said it is historic, and they cited a reason of excessive community interest, I believe, in the parcel.
2: They had issued us our demolition delay approval, and then three weeks later, we got an amended demolition delay denial with that reasoning.
0: Hey, let's back up a little bit. We talked earlier about showing up on a Tuesday at the Zoning Board of Appeals. How do you get to that seat at the Zoning Board of Appeals? What are the steps that it takes from acquisition to that moment where you're sitting in the chair in front of the board? How does that process go in the city of
1: Boston? The starting point for any permitting process in Boston is filing an application for a building permit with our building department, which is called the Inspectional Services Department. The ISD examiners determine whether your project is compliant with zoning or whether there are any violations presented by your proposal. And if there are violations, which as we know is almost always the case for projects of any substance, you will be issued a zoning code refusal letter, which you then appeal from that letter to the Board of Appeal, go through a community review process, And when you have been cleared for takeoff by the powers that be, you then are given a hearing date at the Board of Appeal where you seek the specific relief that you need, either in the form of conditional use permits, variances, or any other weird things that you might need to get under the zoning code. So I
0: think... When you said just the community process, and then you go to the board, that's that's a little bit of a
1: um... that was an abbreviated (laughs) yes, (laughs) abbreviated euphemism.
0: Exactly the word I was looking for.
1: Capital C, capital R, community review. Yes. (laughs) So
0: tell us about that. What does that involve?
1: Again, Boston is not like all the other ones. In 350 cities and towns, this whole notion of butter meetings on site and flyering the neighborhood so that your neighbors can come out to hear about your project in advance of even getting to the Board of Appeal is one of a kind, truly one of a kind.
0: How long has it been that way?
1: Probably since the early 90s. Ray Flynn, Mayor Ray Flynn, instituted the notion of local city halls and neighborhood participation and community involvement in these types of decision-making processes. Then Mayor Menino continued the process and if not empowered the neighborhood groups even more so. And now I think we're seeing a little bit of pushback from the current administration to some of the pull that these groups had in the past. How much clout do you say that these... It varies, it really, it varies by neighborhood. It depends on the nature of what they're complaining about, whether it's reasonable or unreasonable in the eyes of the current administration whether it's consistent with or contrary to current plans and proposals that are being put into place. So it, um, it depends.
0: So there's neighborhood associations for each sort of little district within the city, and then...
1: Sometimes competing and conflicting neighborhood associations. I had an issue with uh, which group was really the group in charge in Jamaica Plain recently and asked for a map of the neighborhood associations and got this map that had, you know, 10 different conflicting lines that crisscrossed and zigzagged over and across each other. And It's like, you know, you ask for a map of New England and you see Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, right? Everyone has a line, everyone has a border. Neighborhood associations, not so much. It's like a turf war. Turf war of ridiculously gargantuan proportions. In the south end, I think there's 20 neighborhood associations. If you look at the map, this block and that block and this block and that block, it's just, it's Turf war, tribalism, parochial narrow-mindedness at its worst. And do they
0: each have their own hot-button issues, or would you say there are certain unifying themes?
1: The one unifying theme with all these community groups in Boston, of course, is, you know, our good friend, packing. (laughs) I was going (laughs) to (laughs) say. That's a universal one. But then, within each neighborhood, there are certain issues that might be unique to that neighborhood, but they're all by and large, you could put a blindfold on me and you know spin me around three times okay, guess which neighborhood you're in, and listen to a community group. And I'd shrug my shoulders and say, oh, I don't know.
3: I don't want us to come across as anti-community group and anti-zoning. That's kind of not what we're here for, right? So there is the value in the process. I think what you're saying, Mark, is that maybe some of the attention and some of the focus has gone in the wrong direction. So if in an ideal scenario, kind of where would you see the value from the community groups and, and what do you think really it should be if,
1: if, if you could play mayor? Yeah, As a student of the law, as a youngster and, you know, reading underpinnings of land use law, super important, serves vital, important interests in protecting communities, no question about it. Ditto for community review and input into decision-making. I'm a huge fan of democracy. Democracy works. Democracy is an awesome thing. My complaint lies more with the, let's say, disproportionate attention that certain segments of the community get or are given that seems not to be reflective of the community as a whole. And when that happens, I feel like democracy is not working.
0: I think the perfect example we can go back to, so the Alexandria Hotel on Mass Ave, a gorgeous building. Its original use was a hotel. It has existed in the past 30 years as probably the best example of a decrepit, rundown building in the city that everyone knows and wishes would be improved. So Mark was the zoning attorney on this, uh, and congratulations, you guys got your approvals just this past week. But you talk about special interests and having a few voices that were trying to be fairly loud that didn't necessarily represent the overall good for for everybody.
1: For sure. In fact, I introduced that project to the BPDA Board of Directors by noting that it was perhaps the most famous neglected building in the city. And I got five affirmative head nods from the board members. They, They got it. They knew exactly what I was saying. And that points precisely to the disproportionality issue I was talking about. We were told by the South End Landmarks planning person that he had received 100 emails in support of the project and four in opposition. But I could tell you who the four were because they're the same four people that showed up to all the meetings and stood up in the back of the room and thought that if they shouted louder than everybody else— and made a bigger stink than everybody else, that somehow that would carry the day. It didn't. What was their reasoning for not wanting? It's too tall. It's too ugly. It's not the right architecture. It's not the right use. It's not good for the community. It's not, you, you name it. Parking is a problem. It's going to drive businesses out of the neighborhood. Everything that it won't do is what they said was the problem. And they had facts and data to back this up, of course, right? Yeah, not, n- <laughs> none. I mean, they even claimed that the building was in terrific shape and could be saved and that there's no need to do what these developers were proposing to do, which is you know, remove the interior of the building and create a new steel structure behind the historic facade. Well, that's because we have structural engineers reports that say that's precisely what needs to happen, yet Someone in the community is able to stand up at a public meeting and, and claim the opposite without producing their own structural engineer's report, without producing any facts or information. Just stand up in a meeting and say, that building's in perfectly fine shape. I think change is tough, and that's that's probably
3: the hardest part with being a developer in Boston, in any city, is that people are used to the way things are, and you come in and you want to propose something new. A lot of things might look a lot different than than what's been there before, that's kind of um, some of the opposition and they don't necessarily voice it in that way. They might use other mechanisms to try and stop it. But I- I've always found that that's kind of an underlying reason as to why people are against change in general. And, and what we've come to no- learn is that the more you kind of talk with people, most people, rational members of the community, you know, you can you can work something out. How much bargaining and you know, negotiating and community togetherness do you see as part of the, the process in a standard case?
1: With savvy community groups, I see a lot of it because they understand how it works and how it's supposed to work and how it's a compromise and a give and take. So savvy community groups get stuff in return. They're the ones you can work with. They're the ones who understand the process and you can figure out what they need in exchange for what you need, which is support for your project. And for clients that you know buck that notion, I always say, well, you know, you're getting something too. You're getting discretionary variances that you're not entitled to so that you can build your project. So when you're being asked to give something in return, it should be intuitive to say yes, but not all clients think the same.
0: What qualities do you look for in a client? Do you have any <laughs> favorite clients or you don't have to name names?
1: Yeah, Mark Savaski. <laughs> <in Austin. laughs> well, I guess I've been doing this for 30 years. So I've certainly you know seen and and done lots of things with many different kinds of people. I guess at the end of the day, I just want a client that is willing to listen to advice based on my experiences, is willing to bring a project in the right direction. At the end of the day, that's just, that's all anyone can ask for. So Ray, you mentioned any city.
2: So, I mean, I don't know if you know any other zoning attorneys in other cities outside of Massachusetts and other parts of the country. Because people in this podcast, you know, are not just from Boston. So how would you say the zoning process in the city compares
1: to other metropolitan cities in the country? Sure. As I understand it, New York City is pretty much, you know, you can do whatever you want. That's why they have so many buildings the size that they do, that it's a lot easier to build tall buildings in New York City without regard for things like, floor area ratio and all the other things that jam us up here in Boston. So New York City is a growing city, will always be a growing city. There's 12 plus million people there. They figure out how to pack more people in and build more buildings and and keep doing it every year. I was in Miami over the holiday break at time and was just astonished at the number of cranes in the skyline and just happened to be in line somewhere. And the person behind me was in the real estate development business, started chatting, and he said they have 300 development projects currently underway in Miami right now. And I thought, 300? Okay. So yeah, we pat ourselves on the back in Boston when we see a dozen cranes in the skyline. 300 in Miami. Other major cities that are growing at a good clip yeah, very different. Houston, Texas does not have zoning, which is astonishing. You think, how can a big city like that not have zoning? It's, I think, the third or fourth largest city in America. And I had dinner once with the mayor of Houston and asked her, how's it work? Even without zoning, she said that it just naturally occurs. So residential areas remain residential, and commercial areas remain commercial. So you, just, you basically submit your plans— and they're reviewed. For building code only. Yep. There's and, no, and then they're approved. Indeed. There's no zoning code zero in Houston, so, Texas. So, Ray, when are we moving to Houston? <laughs> <laughs> Which is why it's such a sprawling <laughs> metropolis, right? Yeah. Because the controls that are used by smaller cities in the Northeast, because we don't have the same kind of land mass, um, simply do not exist. Isn't our marketing guy from Texas, the guy that does our direct
3: mail, And didn't he say that in a town near him, they
1: actually had a requirement that all homes had to be a minimum of 3,000 square feet? That might be, yeah. And then there's San Francisco, of course, which is probably the most expensive housing market in the country with the most serious housing crisis in the country that has the most restrictive zoning in the country, can't build anything in San Francisco, apparently. And they all throw up their hands and say, gee, why is housing so expensive in San Francisco? So is it your personal
3: opinion, or is there data that that you've read somewhere that there's a correlation between restrictive zoning and cost of housing?
0: Absolutely. I think it's basic economics. It's supply and demand. Right. There's actually a bunch of groups, neighborhood groups in San Francisco that are cropping up now called YIMBYs. Yes, in my backyard. And they kind of appreciate just that concept. And they're pushing for more density and more housing to try to bring rental and condo prices.
3: I mean, if you think about it, if we turned on the faucet and just started allow building, we'd kind of, as developers, cause our own demise. We'd overbuild, prices would come down because there'd be a
1: supply-demand imbalance, and then that would fix the price issue. But in Boston, there's such a a severe housing shortage that it will take so long for the supply to match the demand that uh, I don't think we need to worry about that. And the population of Boston continues to grow. In the 1950s, the population of Boston peaked at around 850,000. And then as a result of white flight and the development of the suburbs and plenty of other things that happened to big cities, the population of Boston dropped to under 600,000. And then since 1980-ish, the population of Boston has continued to grow every year, and since 2000, it's continued to grow in an even faster clip. And now it's projected to be back up to 760,000 by the year 2030, thus the mayor's ambitious goal of creating 69,000 units of new housing by the year 2030 to, just to keep pace with the population growth in the city of Boston. So this notion that, you know, we're building all these new units of housing in Boston, that they're remaining vacant and that buildings go dark at night because they're owned by Chinese and Russian investors is just not true. Well, I mean, to your point, Houston, the land
2: mass in Houston is gigantic. I mean, you can't really go, you can't go east in Boston, you can't go east. You can't go, east, so can't go, can't go north, really. You can't really. go really north. I mean, you don't have—the landmass is so much smaller. You know, really the only way to
1: grow is go up. In the central core of the city. But if you look at some of the outlying neighborhoods, there's plenty of land. Yeah. You know, go to the top of the Prudential Building and gaze to the western neighborhoods, and there's a lot of room. But a lot of those perimeter
2: neighborhoods like, quote-unquote, suburban feel. And there's been a lot of pushback in terms of increasing the density in those neighborhoods.
1: For sure. How
0: much of your advice as a zoning attorney do you think is less legalese and more just good practical wisdom based on experience and almost like being a psychologist?
1: I think getting through the process is more like being a licensed social worker. You have to manage anxieties and fears and... All those kinds of things that come up in the process, and then the legal nerd stuff comes in, you know, with the written decision of the board and you know preparing the documents, preparing agreements with the Boston Planning and Development Agency. That's where it's it's purely legal, and but the process itself is by and large um, more like being a therapist. So has that Alexandria
2: Hotel project been the most challenging project you've ever come across, or do you have another?
1: I wouldn't say the most challenging. Um, it was certainly an exciting project because of its prominence. It was an eight and a half month approval process. And for about seven and a half months of that, it was a pure love fest. We put on our our presentation probably you know 30 times. And every single time it was super well received with nary a whisper of opposition. And then just at the end, we had this resurgence of, not resurgence, a surge of last-minute opposition trying to derail the project every way that they possibly could think of, but made it to the BPDA board and got unanimous board approval last Thursday evening. Congrats. Thank you.
0: How often do you think it's more difficult to get a small project, an infill project approved, than something that actually has uh, large projects? Do you feel like the Alexandria Hotel actually has more process that you can follow and opportunities to get those, you know, we'll call them special interest voices filtered out, or is that kind of asinine?
1: I think both small and large projects have their own unique challenges. And sometimes I'm presented with a small project that I think will be super easy to get through and is extraordinarily difficult. And contrary, I'm presented with a very large project that I think there's going to be problems and it sails right through with no opposition. So it's truly impossible to predict the reaction of the community until you hit the streets and start knocking on doors and talking to people as to what the reaction will be to any particular project.
2: So as, as someone that hasn't gone through the zoning process in the city and is interested in doing that, you covered the highlights of the process, but what's, from a time frame standpoint, what's the average amount of time it may take from your submission to the building department through getting approval from the ZBA?
1: That depends in large part on whether you also have to go through the companion Article 80 process, which is Article 80 of the Boston Zoning Code requires that certain small and large projects and institutional projects go through an entirely separate approval process with the Boston Planning and Development Agency, in addition to also needing to go through the zoning process to get to the Board of Appeal. So if if it's not an Article 80 project and is just a zoning Board of Appeal project, I usually tell people four to six months is a reasonable time frame. Unless something unexpected happens, then it it will take longer. If you also have to do the companion Article 80 process, they do proceed in tandem, but it tends to take a little bit longer because there's more more meetings, more agencies involved. So that's more like six to nine months if it also includes Article 80.
2: Once I do go to the ZBA and I get my stamp of approval, I can go into the building department the next week and pull my permit?
1: Once you get your board decision signed by the board, which usually happens two to four weeks after your hearing, after the board decision is signed, then there's a 20-day appeal period during which time an aggrieved abutter could challenge your variances in court. And if they do, that's not so good. Um, But if they don't, yes, you can get your building permit after the 20-day appeal period has run. Dan, I think you were talking about last year you went to an event out in Denver, and
3: you met somebody who works out of D.C., and he was saying that you can go in and get your permit immediately, but then the second anybody complains, they come in and they can basically, they give you a stop work order, a mandatory 30-day stop work order, and it can keep happening. It seemed like what he was telling me was the process was
2: backwards, where it's like really easy to get your permit, but then... Once you start work, when people start to complain after you start the work, then they make you stop and then go through more of the neighborhood-type process, which seems horrendous, backwards and very, very aggravating to me.
1: And I'm told that uh, although Chicago is a phenomenal city with phenomenal architecture and lots of big buildings, that the political portion of the process in Chicago is— unrivaled. I think as developers, we just want consistency. We just want to know what to
3: expect. I mean, it's like if you go and park your car, it says this is a resident parking spot. Okay, I know what it is because it tells me what it is. And if the zoning code says XYZ, then that's the rule that I play by. And I I think all this political and community things and anything that can essentially throw a a curveball into the whole process makes it more difficult, but maybe that's the name of the game. Maybe that's not why everybody's a developer.
0: I, I think be careful what you wish for. Yeah. I'd say that off sometimes you can get into a situation where there is a blighted small house on a decent sized piece of land and there is an opposition to getting additional density on that that the you know, whatever the zoning study might otherwise contemplate, and you might do really well by going through this kind of amorphous, uncertain process.
3: No, no, no. I I agree. I, I think I think it's to Mark's point. You know, it's for the outliers. The zoning process is for the outliers. It's not for every single project to go through. So I agree with you.
0: I think we take some of our profit off the table. Certainly we would reduce our own risk, but at the same well, time, that, risk that was and reward.
2: My, yeah, but but again, wouldn't you like to take some of the arbitrary throwing a dart? I'm fine with following the rules, you know? As long as you just give me what the rules are, yeah. I'll follow
1: them. <laughs> like getting the building permit. It's generally a pretty consistent target, and, yeah. and we're okay with that. Except that, of course, when you guys are presented with an opportunity to do more, understanding how it works in Boston, you have no trouble going and asking for 10 variances for a particular project. Do you think that people do that on purpose? Do you think they shoot for 40, knowing they want to really get 20? No, and I'm I'm not even referring to that. I'm just saying that because there are so few things that you can do as a right in Boston, you, you don't, nor do I, you don't think twice about pursuing variances because it's just the way it works in Boston. So yeah, play by the rules, but... The rules in Boston are we have this ridiculous antiquated zoning code with densities that don't make sense in an urban environment and usable open space requirements that are unachievable in, a, in an urban environment. None of them make sense. But flip side is, well, you can just get a variance, right? You know, it's a double-edged sword. Lightning round? Lightning.
3: <laughs> the official The official lightning round. Is this so. when we win money? <laughs> yeah. I don't know, we should, we should do this then. Yeah, yeah, we
2: should do like a spin the wheel type thing
0: that's a good idea yeah. episode 4,
1: yeah.
0: what's some good advice that someone has given you along your career that you'd want to impart
1: I would say one of the first judges that I worked for as a superior court law clerk my first year out of law school over and over and over it, imparted to me that you never leave your client's interests unrepresented no matter how small the event, no matter what never ever leave your client's interests un- unrepresented in other words just show up to everything no matter what and i and i still hear him saying that to me when people say things like well i'm not going to go to that one because it doesn't matter or i'm not going to i'm not going to go to that closing or i'm not going to just it, it just i couldn't ever do it i couldn't not show up to something and leave my client's interests unrepresented
0: i'll give you one back cuz you told me this don't judge the success of a meeting by What did happen, judge it by how it, what
1: what didn't. We judge the success of these things by what didn't happen.
0: You can walk out of a meeting and go, can't believe I put a shirt and tie on and spent my entire evening. And then, you know, well, it could have blown up in your face. It's great that you got unanimous support.
1: That's right. What's your favorite part about being a zoning attorney? I guess I love big cities. I love real estate. I love the urban environment. I love seeing tall buildings go up. I like change. I like progress. So it's fun to be part of the business that is changing Boston into the city that it is and will continue to become. Have you ever developed, and would you develop? I have not developed property, and can't say I wouldn't, but just not uh, not on my radar screen right what now. What
0: about a beehive colony?
1: I have developed a beehive colony. I have a two- or three-box beehive on my roof deck in Southie, which produces lots of awesome, raw, local honey. Which is great for the environment. Because without pollinators, we would not have fruit and vegetables. The company that I use to run my beehive is called Best Bees Company, and the guy who founded the company is doing research on why we have colony collapse disorder in North America. Because, again, without bees, we would not have food. It's that simple.
0: Real estate, investing, finance, and environmentalism. This is what you get. You
2: go through, obviously, you go to these these community meetings all the time.
1: I do. So for the road, what is one of the craziest stories from (laughs) some of these meetings that you've had? There's just, I mean, there's so many, I guess. Crazy more just turns on sad. There's one I remember is just plain old sad. And it was community meeting for a new apartment building for persons with MS and other neurological disorders. So the building was going to be completely handicapped accessible, 100% affordable on the grounds of a six acre campus of an existing facility that housed such persons in wheelchairs. Needed a lower level of care. And the community meeting was in the facility itself, where people in wheelchairs who were residents of the facility and would be moving into the new facility were present at the meeting. And somebody, you know, in opposition stood up and said, We don't want those people living in our neighborhood. Right. And they were right there. And I'm like, Oh, you mean those people over there? Just the Someone would actually say something like that and, and verbalize it. I just thought, ugh.
0: It's almost like there was a news story about the marijuana dispensary where some guy thought he was speaking uh, sarcastically and uh, well-to-do businessman in the city, and really gave himself a
1: yeah over the top. Well, that's you know the the hysteria that is put on display during zoning board hearings for medical and retail marijuana dispensaries is just mind-boggling. None of the horrors that were predicted for the one, for example, on Milk Street in the financial district, which opened several years ago, I happened to be at that hearing, the hysteria of traffic and lines out the door and vagrancy and what about the children and what about the elderly and what about and what about and what if, none of those horrors predicted have ever even come close to happening. And the same thing, there was one proposed for Newberry Street. And what about the children? And what about, and what about? None of those things happen at medical or recreational facilities, not to mention it's a legal product. Then they talk about the lines out the door down the street. Oh my God, there's going to be lines out the door down the street. And every time I walk by Georgetown Cupcakes on Newberry Street and see a line out the door down the street on Newberry Street, people lining up to buy cupcakes, I'm like, look. It's just like a pot store. (laughs) Just going to say downtown financial district during lunch. Yeah, there's lines everywhere. But there's no hysteria about the cupcake store. So now now I turn it around, now I say, of marijuana retail stores. I'm like, they're selling a legal product, just like cupcakes. If
2: someone wants to get in touch with you, if someone wants to reach out, how can they do that?
1: They could call me at 617-605-2767. Or shoot me an email, M-A-R-C at L-A-C-A S-S-E-L-A-W dot com.
0: Mark's on Instagram, too.
1: Instagram, Facebook. If you just Google my name, I'm I'm findable. Awesome.
3: Well, thanks, Mark. This has been enlightening, and we very much appreciate your time and coming down to our little makeshift studio. So, everybody, we'll check in with you on the next episode, and thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.